if there is any episode of The Social Complex that should be required listening, this one's it. The future of our world. (laughs) That makes it sound so big, but it is. The future of our world has always been top of mind for me with social media and digital media. And I have personally wrestled with if it is for good or for evil or for somewhere in between in the gray, I am really curious how this level of access is going to impact our future generations, how we operate. And you'll hear it in this interview too. I have my biases that technology grown so quickly that our brains just haven't really had a chance to catch up and we haven't really had a chance to process exactly how to navigate it. And that concerns me in a regard of are future generations going to fail because of it? Or are they going to fall behind? Or are they going to lose certain elements of the human experience like connection and community that we hold so dearly in today's world? You'll hear it in the interview with an incredible guest. Linda Charmarman joins us today for an interview talking all about the well-being of our teens and tweens as a result of social media. Linda is a senior research scientist at the Wellesley Centers for Women and director of the Youth Media and Wellbeing Research Lab. Her research interests include technology and adolescent health, digital citizenship, innovative research methods to include overlooked and hidden populations like gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and political affiliation affect well-being. She is currently conducting a three-year study funded by the National Institutes of Health to follow middle school students and their parents during a critical developmental period to determine longer-term health and well-being effects of social technologies, including smartphones, social media, YouTube, and gaming. A key goal of this project is not only to prevent negative health effects of social media use, but also to harness its potential to increase connections with other people and communities through the exchange of social and emotional support and opportunities for civic engagement. Linda dives into what the research is telling us about the impact of digital media on our teens and tweens, as well as what we may be seeing in the future from these digitally ingrained generations. This interview shifted my own biases and perspectives on the future of the social space, and I hope you enjoy some takeaways of your own. Let's get into it. This age group is actually very vulnerable. They're just learning the ropes of all the capabilities and features of social media sites, and they're very prone to peer influence, which is normal. You know, at this age, they want to seek autonomy from their parents. That's very normal at this age, and so a lot of times they'll do that online. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Tell me a little bit about you and your background and your line of work. Sure, my name is Linda Chamarman, and I am the founder and director of the Youth Media and Wellbeing Research Lab at Wellesley Centers for Women, which is at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. And we run uh, several studies uh, having to do with tween and teen social media and well-being. 
the risk and resilience of being in this digital world that we live in um, at the moment. And, and we, we conduct a lot of basic research, like survey research in schools of, of tweens and teens and their parents and of the teachers. We also conduct uh, interview research and focus group re research. We have analyzed their Instagram accounts by viewing them and observing them. We have also been running some um, sort of intervention sort of work, co-design work of social media use communities with youth in the summers. In fact, we have one starting up next week uh, of about 40 young um, girls, girls of color in particular across the country in about six different states, I think, about how they could use uh, digital media and social media in healthier ways. And, uh, and yeah, we're really excited about that kind of work. That's that awesome. These days. <laughs> You're doing the important work. This is the, this is what we need in a landscape that changes so rapidly. And it almost feels like, uh, it, it just took off and had a life of its own before anyone understood the repercussions or what they were really dealing with or some of the fallout. So you're doing some incredibly important work. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate that. Of course. When did you begin researching the subject? Oh, gosh. When I try to trace back to where it started, I, I my uh, dissertation work back in, at Berkeley School of Ed was about youth media programs. And so um, sort of kids um, taking cameras and t um, doing videos and, and recording music about their lives and dispelling myths about urban youth and what they are and who they are. And, and so more traditional forms of media. And really, in the end, my main um, interest in research is really about social development of youth and what better way to understand how they develop socially than to check them out on, on social media, you know? So a lot of people, you know, um, in, in the old days before social media, they would, you know, try to understand you know, how youth, you know, developed themselves in, in peer groups, you know, but a lot of times that had to do with, you know, having to do naturalistic observations like in school settings or in after school settings. And, you know, that is definitely a really uh, hotbed of, of information about how to understand youth. But, but now that, that digital life has, has sort of seeped into normal, everyday social interactions with youth and their peers, it makes sense to also understand their social media worlds, their digital worlds that are very intertwined. And so my research went from being about youth creating media to youth being on social media, interacting with other people. But now they also create things on that social medium as well with YouTube channels and, you know, TikTok videos and things like that. And so my, my interest originally was on traditional media co-creation and traditional audiences like, like community screenings, you know, of their videos. But now we have worldwide audiences and people that follow, you know, your channels. And so you have so many more creative ways of getting audiences these days. You can look at that subject and say, wow, well, that took a turn. <laughs> that blew up. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, my advisors at the time thought, oh, this is just a temporary thing. It's not going to be a thing, Linda. Don't, just stick stick with your mainstream broadcast media work and, and social media is not going to be here to stay. I remember them telling me that. I remember thinking, no, I think I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep researching this area. <laughs> oh, Linda, I love so hearing glad I did. that. <laughs> I'm glad you did too. And it, it's funny you use that as an example because that's how I got into this line of work was people saying it wasn't going to be a job. And I was 
was like, I think you're missing something. So we're going to go ahead and uh, double down here. So (laughs) mad respect. (laughs) So what, what year was this when all of this was happening and you, this, you started noticing and seeing this shift in the audience? Well, I mean, I, I'm talking about, I was doing my dissertation even before Facebook even was created. And so when Facebook was created and it was starting to, to be a thing and MySpace was definitely the, the main research being conducted, you know, back, back when there were people were, were writing about social media and researching about it and checking out chat rooms and things like that. That was, you know, in the early 2000s. But I think it started to be a lot more mainstream to, to even research social media if you're an adolescent development researcher, probably only in the last 10 years and maybe even the last five years because of all the media attention that's, that there's been on it, you know, that that it's it's a it's a context that is missing in a lot of those you know major contexts that influence you know youth development uh, media the people don't know where to where to put it is it under peer you know context is it under family context is it under school context is it under political context maybe it's under all of them but but it's hard for people to kind of place it as a, as a media professional you probably understand what I'm talking about it's kind of infused infusing in, in our everyday lives but in ways that a lot of people don't expect or or you know can't categorize very easily yeah it does feel almost like it's its own subcategory but also it, it feels like because it's so infused with so many other facets of life like if, if people this is their career this is their relationship creation and connection this is how they're staying up to date with what's going on in their schools and their families so i just feel like it almost weaves its way into so many different niche areas of someone's development, especially when you're thinking about teenagers and young kids. Um, and I, I know from a professional standpoint, a lot of the clients that I've worked with run into the issues with their own employees where they're like, okay, well, we have to have an employee handbook on how they can use social media. But then is that overreaching and overstepping by saying what they can and cannot do on their own personal social media? And so that's been a, a gray boundary for a lot of organizations trying to figure out that side of it, I can't even imagine getting into the administrative level with students and kids and, you know, that extra layer of what maybe used to just be in the lunch hall now being in DMs, in comments, at home. It's just, it it feels so consistent in their lives now. Yes, it's such a blurred boundary in the in the schools because I mean they they want to know where where their care of the youth stops in a way. I mean, is there a boundary? Is it a topic that is pertinent for teachers to kind of manage their classrooms? I and mean, do they need to be trained on dealing with social media use? And the guidance counselors definitely tell us yes, it's it's in everyday on you know the the peer drama. Oftentimes it starts online and then it seeps into the classroom, and so it's sort of a, an area that you can't wall off. Yeah. You know, it's still part of peer relationships and if they can concentrate in school. And so, um, but, but I I hear you with, with the, with the restrictions on, you know, who can communicate with who and what, what can you say, you know, like for instance, for instance, can teachers be friends and followers of, of, of students? I mean, where is the line? You know, you want to have this connection. You want to have this community building. Maybe you have a project that the, the, the teacher is trying to build and we want to all be on the same social media channel and we can all kind of collaborate together on a social media network. But then I think a lot of schools traditionally are very worried about people being on social media. They, they block those things mm-hmm. while they're in, in the school day. You know, they, there's firewalls, but there, it could also be a medium for collaboration. So yeah, so it, it's a lot of gray area for schools and for companies and 
you know, it probably won't be easier anytime soon, <laughs> those gray areas. Yeah, I think that's kind of the nature of the game. But you had mentioned that early 2000s, you were hearing chatter that this wasn't even going to be something to worry about. So don't even waste your time on it. And then obviously it became something that did. And then you're seeing resistance almost at every level. It's like as the technology continues to evolve, people resist it to some degree in some level or really underestimate the power that it's actually going to have in those earlier days and throughout your career. Are there any ideas or any, uh, symptoms with through this that you've noticed that you're like, no, I think that this actually does have legs. I do think it's actually going to be indicative of something that's more pervasive in our lives. Is there anything that you've noticed trend wise at each of those stages of resistance that, um, kind of indicates that maybe this is something more than we'd like to give it credit for. Yes. I mean, one one example that comes to mind is uh, federal funding and interest in funding research about this topic. Uh, back when I was starting to just write grants about it, it was uh, the reviewers definitely thought this was just too controversial you know, invasion of privacy territory, you know, this this thing isn't something um, of primary interest in terms of health and well-being. Back, you know, I would say, you know, 10 years ago, I think in the last five years, and especially in the last year, because of the, of the, the things that have been going on in, in the media, there's been quite a lot, a surge of interest of, oh my gosh, this has been something we should have been thinking about and tracking all along. We're kind of behind. And there's a lot more new initiatives to fund research and programming and curricula developed and online modules and, and people partnering, you know, to, to form, you know, alliances to try to help, you know, youth and educators and parents to understand the social media landscape in ways that it just was taboo before. It was, you could tell, you know, the, the reviewers of federal Funding agencies often are very established people in their fields that are used to certain techniques and certain methods. And when they see something like this, that's sort of another dark horse coming out of the the, the starting gate, there's a lot of resistance because they think it's not uh, it's a, it's a marginal in- issue. It's not the the usual you know health and well being categories that that they're used to, like like sleep, health, or or physical activity, or or the, the things that are the traditional you know categories. So going back to that that thing uh, that I was talking about earlier, that it's hard to to categorize social media under which health and well being silo in terms of funding streams. It, it sort of goes into behavioral health, it goes into mental health, it goes into you know, even STEM learning, you know, it could go under so many different categories and, and there's a resistance to it because there's um, a misunderstanding, I think, about digital media. So with all of that complexity, what is the research telling us about the impact that social media is having on teens and tweens today? Yes, that, that is a very, uh, very uh, big question to <laughs> ask because a lot of times, a lot of studies do a really good job at understanding that one corner of digital media life, you know, like maybe something specific like about internet browsing and life satisfaction or, or, you know, looking at Instagram photos and body image. And so most of the time studies have a cross-sectional look, kind of like a one-time peering into this, you know, 
landscape and can, can give us some clues about what the overall picture is. And so we have studies that are those one-time cross-sectional nature, and then we have studies that are sort of like review studies of across many different studies, you know, what is the landscape? Is it a, is it a positive sort of outlook? Is it a negative outlook? A lot of the major sort of well-being uh, indicators are have to do with depression and anxiety and you know those kinds of things and the answer is is a mixed bag it's it's very complicated some studies show uh, a direct relationship between increased social media use and increased depression and then some studies show no effects at all that, that they are not they're not associated and then there's other studies that actually show the opposite like the more social media use the less depression now this all has to do with methodology it all has to do with who are you asking and in what ways, like what age groups are you tackling? Are you tackling tweens? Are you tackling tw teens, college students, adults? Um, how are you measuring it? Are you, are you measuring it through time use? Like how many times are you going on social media? Or are you measuring it by what are you using on social media? Like what are you doing? Like what is your purpose? What is your motivation? And so it really depends on how it's measured. But in the end, we also have very little to go by in terms of what comes first, the mental health sort of picture that steers you to social media use in a, in a particular way? Or is it social media use that steers you in a mental health enhancement or going in the negative direction? Yeah. Um, and so people need to do more longitudinal studies to understand the directionality of what comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of a thing. So yeah, I'm sorry. It's not an easy answer. <laughs> no, that's what this podcast is called, the social complex. I think anyone that can say for sure that they have an answer right now might be a little too big for their britches because <laughs> it's a big undertaking. And I, I am a firm believer that the technology just really surpassed the belief that it was going to be anything big and the research to be able to accommodate it. It just grew too quickly to some degree um, yeah. that no one could really have a fair chance to wrap their head around it. So research you're doing is very important with it. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned, though, that there was the question essentially of the chicken or the egg. Is the mental health impacting social media use or is social media use impacting mental health? Is it both? Is it neither? How does it really interact with one another? What are some other questions that are really prevalent in the research community around this topic that you hear a lot of wanting answers around? Yes. I mean, one, one topic, um, which is Controversial in terms of corporate interests, um, for instance, is the age of initiation. You know, does it really, is 13, you know, in terms of the federal regulations to, to not, um, you know, collect personal information from, from, you know, users under the age of 13, it's really a consumer level sort of uh, protection as opposed to like their health and well-being. And so I think one of the things that our lab has been tackling is, the, is does the age of initiation matter in terms of health and well-being of, of youth rather than just the consumerism kind of aspect of it and collecting their information in, in privacy settings. And some of our research has, has been showing, um, at least in, a, in the short term, some of the negative aspects of, you know, online harassment or you know, getting exposed to, you know, fear of missing out and, and, and being too hooked on social media, you know, having like that, those kinds of qualities. Um, uh, if, you, if you start using social media at 13, 12, even 11, they're all kind of similar um, in terms of the outcomes. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, there's no protection to wait until you're 13 in a way when you're looking at those specific types of negative outcomes. But when you start social media at 10 and younger, 
there are a lot more speed bumps and things that parents need to be looking out for because they're much more prone to be exposed to online harassment, much more prone to have online sexual solicitation. They're more, more prone to be on social media sites that their parents wouldn't approve of. And so, so in our research, at least, like 10 seems to be a, a, a breaking point. Like 11 might, not, might be a, a much more older and more wiser and more mature to start on these sites with parental guidance, of course, because that's what the federal regulation is. If you're going to go start it before 13, you need to have parents guiding you to knowing what's going on. And that's some kind of research that is really hard to come by when most social media research is on college students and maybe high school. Mm-hmm. And so our lab has, has been focusing on middle school students and the tweens when really that's when everybody's getting their phones for the first time. I mean, the average age of getting their phone for the first time in the U.S. is now 10.3, which is kind of like fourth grade, you know? Yeah. And so researchers are sort of needing to go younger and younger, but it's really hard to get these samples when they're young because the schools sometimes are resistant. They don't want you to be introducing social media concepts too early. And the parents are also worried about you telling them about social media before they are ready to expose their youth. And so it's much more convenient mm-hmm. to, to survey college students and even high school students compared to middle school students. So it's very little research now on this age group. But I think that's something that hopefully will, will change with the knowledge that this age group is actually very vulnerable in mm-hmm. terms of you know, they're just learning the ropes of all the capabilities and features of social media sites, and they're very prone to peer influence, and, and that, which is normal, you know, at this age. They want to seek autonomy from their parents. That's very normal at this age, and so a lot of times they'll do that online. <laughs> yeah. So. That's fascinating. I'm, I would be really curious to see how many of those students have a secret Instagram account, TikTok account that their parents don't know about. That is at that age where you're like, oh, oh, I, I, it, it, it creeps me out to know that there's kids that young online just because I've seen it be such a wild and weird place. The thing that I've noticed about my research on middle school students compared to the ones about college students is it actually feels, at least from my assessment from, you know, the four year you know, NIH funded study that we just are completing right now, that it's actually a very supportive and positive community compared to older youth because they're coming out of elementary school where they're they're sort of all everybody sort of adds each other as friends because they're all kind of friends at, at that at that point mm-hmm. there's not as much scaffolding of the mean and negative things until you get older unfortunately that's when the negativity comes into play yeah. and people and then and then that's when you know if you have guidance from parents they could help you curate your online community much more. Like you can get rid of those mean people, those bully people, those people that really are going to, you know, bring down your well-being if they are constantly saying things and doing things that, that you know, get at your self-confidence. Um, but, but overall, it's a very innocent <laughs> community when you're looking at their, their feeds. <laughs> they, there's not as much drama that you would imagine adult drama to be, you know, like all those Facebook fights over politics or something like that, that that's not really what they're doing uh, in social media. They're just talking about, here, look at my selfie. I'm wearing my new outfit and, you know, things like that. Or, or I, I, my, my sports team just won the championship and, 
you know, hooray for us. Here's our new jersey. And yeah. that's sort of like the, the landscape of the middle school social media use. Yeah, they're sweet. I It, it, it just, it, especially being the internet is just an open playing field that I feel like there's not enough restriction, especially around you know, child pornography, things like that, sexual predators online. I'm like, oh my gosh, just keep, keep away, keep far away and as much protection as possible. But that's my bias coming in and being like, it's just too scary to even think about kids being in that playing field. And I think that sometimes with, um, YouTube specifically the YouTube for kids, I've seen that come up in controversies occasionally around um, whether even YouTube for kids has enough protection in place based on, I would say, a varying degree of parental um, comfortability might be the best way to say it. Um, But different parents have different thresholds of comfort of what they do and don't want their kids to see. And sometimes with YouTube for kids, I've I've noticed um, complaints appearing here and there from different parents around the protection that's even in that forum specifically curated for kids. Yeah, I think with all algorithms that are designed to try to get the best possible scenarios of what to show and what not to show, algorithms also can fail, you know, because they over-screen out things and they can also under-screen out things. It reminds me of the percentage rates of condom use. I mean, uh, excuse me for like the analogy, but but it's like 97, it's not like 100%. It's yeah, like 97%. And so sometimes that little 3% does seep in if you're the unlucky like youth that ends up having to, to deal with some of that protection. But thank goodness that 97% is in place. It's mm-hmm. just that we can't guarantee that the 3% is not going to come seep out and the parent um, won't know about it, you know, in time to help talk it through, you know, with, with their child. I think that's a good way of putting it, though, as far as it's not fail-proof. And I think that sometimes with technology, there can be this assumption that it is perfect because it is a computer running the software. But that degree of emotional intelligence that you're going to get when it is, you know, moderated by a human and in a classroom setting, for example, you're not going to have a left field coming out of a quality-controlled space nearly yes. as often as you would with, like you said, algorithms. So I think that's a very fair assessment to, to put in place. <laughs> so what are some trends that you are seeing coming from our teens and our tweens that around emotional resilience, risk factors, behaviors? What are you noticing that's coming from this population? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the latest trends have to do with the movement to be more authentic, for instance, so which which really goes back into that need to get approval from peers, which means over curation, really thinking about your presentation of yourself and your brand and your identity. And so sometimes that leads to a lot of, you know, feelings of inadequacy and feelings of, you know, what is the ideal self? Am I really presenting my ideals? Is this really me or am I presenting what is the best of me? And And that's what I want people to know about me as opposed to the real me. You know, and so I think there's more of a movement these days to not just put up like the the best, most filtered, perfect image of yourself, but to kind of hang loose sometimes. You know, there's a there's a new uh, social media site called Be Real where they encourage you like at least once a day to post. You know, just randomly they'll tell you, okay, post whatever you're doing right now, even if you're 
you're doing something where you're not, you know, looking your best or you're not doing something that you're supposed to be doing, you're supposed to be doing your homework, but maybe you're, you're gaming or something like that, mm -hmm. but you're just posting you as, as yourself and everybody feels more comfortable to be themselves um, when other people are invited to do that as well. What are some potential issues that we may see from this generation as they get into adulthood? Well, I think that what I've been um, observing is there's such a there's such a uh, a movement to identify fake materials and fake news and fake influencers that sometimes people kind of lose sight that there's actually most people are are real and authentic and they're not trying to scam people. So there is a little bit of a jadedness that that sometimes starts to maybe kind of follows you into uh, adulthood. And that's it's kind of sad because most people maybe want to actually really connect with you as opposed to just get something out of you. Um, there's a little bit of that jadedness um, that, oh, what product are you selling? Or who, who are you um, representing? You know, as opposed to, oh, no, we're just, I'm just trying to be your, I'm just asking you to follow me as a friend. <laughs> so so there's that. And, and then there's this, this overemphasis, I think, on creating the perfect persona you know, like as an adult, you know, as a teen, you might be uh, the perfect, the perfect student is the thing that you're trying to create or the perfect college goer, the per person who wants to seek a job. This is the kind of persona I want to put out there so that it's palatable for future employers. But then as an adult, if they, if they buy into the fact that they have to be something that they're not exactly that, you know, they want to put that package together, it might, it might influence the way that they use the medium or not use the medium as an adult. Like maybe they become a parent one day and they might hesitate to be judged by other parents by the things they post because they've been, they've been shamed in the past when they talked about something very authentic, you know, that they were going through. You know, as a teen, hopefully their networks were supportive when they were having a struggle, when they were stressful, people didn't, you know, make fun of them or tease them, you know, so hopefully they, they will know who were their healthy network, you know, people that they want to keep into adulthood because as people get older, I do notice that the teens are able to disengage with whole groups of people and whole communities. As they get older, they, they become more, more um, picky about who they're going to follow and to, because it, it's, it's a free-for-all when you first start it because you just want to have as many people you want to catch up you feel like you're behind all these people have you know 500 people already um you're you just started with 30 um and then as you get older it is a, a great opportunity to start to you know start to really winnow down who do you really care about being on your network and who are these real people as opposed to friends of friends of friends who you've never met mm -hmm. who you who could be not who they say they are, you know, who knows who these people are unless you verified them. I feel like that's an interesting fallout too, from the days of even MySpace. That's when I was getting into the space and when I was getting, you know, an, an a bearing on what was happening in the land of social media. And I just remember being friends with people I have never met in real life and I had all of these profiles and followers and I loved it because I was seeing all these new, you know, almost cultural shifts with the music component on MySpace and design ideas and creativity. And then when Facebook came into play, it was 
a little bit of that trickled over where, you know, we were still adding people we didn't know. Now in this day and age, I'm like, I would never add someone I don't know on Facebook. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I am locked to the nines on all my social media because there's just too many weird people out there. So I, I was, I had been wondering, is that a, is that a generational thing or is that a age thing? As you get older, you are going to be a little bit more restrictive, but are younger generations might actually, as they are in that young and excited phase and getting into everything, are they still going to be more apt to the open door policy that social media can offer? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, my, my guess is that at least with the age component, you know, when they first start, you know, we ask them, oh, you know, you need to lock down your privacy settings. You need to make sure that, you know, people don't know where you're, you're, you are. So make sure that you don't have your track, you know, geolocation, you know, tags on. And then, and most, most teens and tweens are kind of like, but I don't, I don't mind if people know where I'm going. I want my parents to know where I am, or I, I, I want to know where, where I can meet up with my friends. And I don't, I don't understand the reason why I wouldn't want to keep things private. And it's definitely, it feels like a, an adult fueled fear that sometimes we we sort of um, etch onto the the young the young mind of what they're they might be creating but really what they're creating at that age is is so um uh in their minds you know they want to to be seen they mm -hmm. want to get the approval and the likes and the comments that they want people to to notice them they don't want to lock it down at that stage um and so there there's sort of like a but when they get older and they realize, oh my gosh, there could be some, they, they become a little bit more um, suspicious. You know, mm -hmm. at first it's, it's very trusting, very trusting view of the world that nobody's going to try to follow them and kidnap them, you know, but then when you get older, you start realizing, oh, there are negatives to, for people to know where you are and your regular schedule and, and to share your location or, or what, what high school you go to or your real name even sometimes. So, uh, so they, they start to realize that there are ramifications. And some of it has to do with just the developing adolescent brain. You know, they don't realize the future consequences and, and how they can affect them now. They, they feel very invincible, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that, that there's really nobody out there to get me. But when they get older, they're, it's not a personal thing. It's just a, a general societal condition that you need to protect yourself because, you know, no, you never know who's out there trying to get your information um, for whatever purposes that they might have. And that's something you guess, I guess you learn as you get older and become more, more suspicious. <laughs> so what can parents do to help their kids inevitably as they're going to get curious and use the platforms and, you know, experiment with what's out there and how they can connect with different people? What, what perspective advice um, would you give to parents that are navigating that with their teens and tweens? even younger. Yes, yes, even younger. I mean, I would say that every child is different. It might need different rules. Like if you have several children in your home, it might not even be an age-related thing. It's about maturity and how much they can self-regulate themselves. Like how much are they affected by like a negative comment? Can they, you know, kind of 
swatted away from their mind or are they depressed for a week because of somebody's comment? And so it really depends on the emotional maturity and self-regulation skills of your child. And you won't know that unless you actually see how they're using it in a way. So they might be fine to, in your mind in terms of in real life interactions with friends, but they might be a whole different kind of person in order to, to um, in terms of their their capabilities online. And so just to be aware of that. And also that, that you know, when, when, when you start to realize that there's a lot of restrictions that you need to take, you know, that need to take hold, you know, as they get older, like on YouTube, maybe not beyond, you know, three hours a, a, a night, you know, um, have some kind of restriction, that restrictions alone usually aren't going to be the answer at this stage. Usually it's, it's a combination of some type of restriction and also dialogue about it. Like, why do you have the restriction? Because we want you to get enough sleep. You know, don't you think it's a good idea for you to be able to concentrate, you know, in the next day and to have a negotiation about, okay, what makes sense on the weekends versus the weekday? And um, and to have tweens and teens understand the reasoning behind restrictions and rules helps them actually buy into it and not try to hack into the system to to override any kind of controls that you have because they don't agree with you, you know. So it, it, in the end, they're very savvy. They they know how to override a lot of things. And the more dialogue you have about the nuanced stuff, it's not even just the number of minutes or hours that you're on social media and your phone. It's about what happens if this, you know, if X happens, here are some things that you could do to, you know, to help, you know, that online harassment issue or somebody who keeps trying to add you as a friend who looks suspicious or, mm-hmm. you know, somebody, you know, who is posting inappropriate things with like a lot, a lot of profanity or, um, and that, and that it's, and that it's okay to always come back to the parent and talk about these things in a way that they're not going to be afraid that they're going to have their phones taken away from them. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I wanted to put out there, that a lot of times parents, when they see something bad happening, maybe their friends, they don't like what the friend group is doing. They say, okay, lockdown, no more, shut down, deactivate, give me the phone. And if that is the orientation, um, that often leads to they won't share with you anymore. They just won't tell you what's going on. And wouldn't you rather hear what's going on and to be able to talk it through than to not be, you know, to be in the, in the dark. That's yeah. my main sort of talk um, advice. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. And I think it, it kind of holds a little bit of a candle to the whole, I told you, because I said so idea that mm-hmm. some parents have and have had in the past. And the idea and the need for dialogue I think you said so eloquently with the fact that kids are savvy. And even if as millennials become parents and younger millennials become parents and we're the first digital native group, they're going to be smarter than us, way smarter, Mm because that's just how it goes. So trying to outsmart the kid (laughs) on technology is just not really going to happen, even for the savviest of us. So I think that's a really poignant way of looking at it and I, you know, really summarizing it. Now that we know what parents can do, let's turn it to the social media platforms. I know that there's a lot of talk and debate about where, not the blame, but the responsibility of how users interact with platforms. Is that on the user or is it on the platform to navigate how their behavior and reactions live within, you know, one, one massive environment that is the platform itself. So Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, 
How can social media platforms become a healthier place for teens in the future? That's also a nice big question that it's going to be asked over and over again as as our, our digital te- te- technology evolves for sure. But one thing that comes to mind is, I mean, they already have extensive use of algorithms. And why not use algorithms not only to, to identify negative content and have all these content moderators kind of deal with all the negativity, but, you know, and... But also, why not use algorithms to, to look for a positive content, content that really boosts well-being and supportive nature, and to like, put a higher on the feed as opposed to like all the negative stuff that, oh, you know, you clicked on this ad and now suddenly you're going to get all these weight loss, you know, ads. And, um, but maybe if they click on like, you know, self-care and meditation and have more algorithms that really promote taking care of oneself and those kinds of things. I think also having youth heavily involved in the co-design of new initiatives that involve increasing youth well-being, I think is really important. I think a lot of influencers, for instance, could be educated in the, the reality that even though their their content isn't directly for youth, the youth are consuming their content, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So imagine like, you know, if you're, if you have this, you know, webpage on a fitness, you know, influencer sort of page and how a 13-year-old would perceive some of your advice. Kind of always remember, even though you say on your webpage that this is, most people aren't saying this is only for adults, you know, mm-hmm. unless it's like a porn, you know, maybe site, but but to always assume that there are younger and younger people looking at your content and that at least some of your content being, you know, appropriate and just specific for that for the younger people too. Don't assume that you're only having adults on your site. Yeah, absolutely. That answers my next question too, which is what can <laughs> brands do to mitigate some of the harmful effects? Cause you're right. I think that the younger and younger that kids are going to be on these platforms, they are going to be looking up things that are interesting to them, things that they may have been hearing from peers or from parents or guardians. They're going to be investigating because they have access to it. So why not? And the more that brands can do to help that cause to some degree, form or fashion, I think that can be, you know, only a good thing in and of itself. Yeah. And and youth of today, um, at least in our digital well-being workshops that we hold every year, they're becoming more and more, you know, caring about the mission behind different brands and and what their philosophy is. And if they are aligned with it, then they're more likely to want to be, you know, looking more into their product. Like, like for instance, if people are really interested in climate change type of things, you know, global warming, and, and if your product isn't aligned with their values, you know. And so it, you can almost kind of... Uh, Brands might be able to look into sort of civic engagement type of ways to to involve um, youth and and future consumers too. like, you know, really look into what they care about, what the consumers really care about first, and then see if your brand has a role in helping with that particular issue, that social issue that they care about. Yeah, absolutely. What are some ways, kind of leaning into that, that brands can get involved Beyond civic engagement, is there, are there any organizations out there, any research um, groups that are really looking for better funding or better access that brands might be able to combine forces with 
uh, to help make the digital and social media space a better place. Oh, wow. I mean, I could, I could think of so many different general categories like youth development organizations. They are charged with trying to keep youth safe and thriving after school. And, and it's a huge market for, you know, teens, you know, children and teen, tweens and teens for parents to to trust these organizations with their youth, you know, in the after school hours. And they are always underfunded. <laughs> and brands could, you know, come in and maybe hold workshops and webinars or things for youth development programs to to showcase, you know, content that would be educationally, you know, um, enriching and also to have fun with like, like, you know, developing a YouTube channel. Like like my daughter, the other, this, this semester, there's this, uh, um, after school program, you know, in which they, they create a YouTube pages together and they're only in fourth grade. She's only in fourth grade and they're already creating this, this environment where you too can be a content creator, but also knowing what the limits are of, you know, people being that young. Um, so it could be tied to activities that parents are already seeking to, you know, saying safe on social media is, is definitely a big category that, that parents care about and also a way to pass the time in the after school. That would be a, a great marriage. I think, of multiple collaborators with the same cause. I love it. So last question for you. Given the research that you're doing today, what do you foresee the future of social media to be in how consumers, young and old, are using it, interacting, engaging with it? Where do you think it's headed? Oh, gosh. I would say that as long as the social media platforms keep the things that make the young people feel seen and heard and valued, they're not lost in the shuffle of so many different things being overshadowed by more famous people. You know, as long as they can keep that internal peer group as the main source of their enjoyment on the site, you know, all this other stuff is sort of hopefully on the side um, and not interfering with the main peer groups and families and, you know, connecting with each other and exploring their identities. It'll help them feel like they have control over their experience on social media. I think when, when, um, when people feel like when they go on, they don't even recognize their feed because there's, it's been overtaken by so many different messages and it's o information overload. People start to deactivate. They, they kind of are overwhelmed. They don't even want to go in there because they only want to get to the parts that they really care about, like their best friends. I want to know what my best friends are, are doing. And then if I have some time, I'll go look and see my favorite actor and what they're doing, you know, with the award ceremonies and things like that. I think, I think that's something that I hope that social media platforms could keep keep aware that it's all about connecting. It's social media to connect, not feel so socially isolated in this world. And that is the, the main superpower of social media and not to only connect people with the brands that could keep them running in terms of marketing, but really, really double down on that connecting because social isolation is a societal problem. It's a, you could really help with the public health issue of isolation and if we can keep working on that as the core of social media, I think there's so many possibilities and of, of positive, some negative, but a world of positive. 
I love it. Linda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You were incredible. I learned so much that I'm already, I wrote down a ton of notes that I'm going to review after this and really reflect on. Uh, how can our listeners follow you, learn more about you, get in touch with you, pimp yourself out? Sure. Oh, well, our webpage is www.youthmediawellbeing.org. You can also follow us on Instagram, Youth Media Wellbeing. And we'd love to hear from you. And we can also collaborate. More minds solving this complex problem, the better, right? So, Absolutely. so come reach out. Amazing. Thank you, Linda, so much. Take care and have a wonderful rest Take of your care. day. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.